Thanks. We're going to be looking at Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Uh, If you have one of the Hope Bibles, it's on page 682. I wanted to start off just acknowledging, uh, you see my title on the screen, that, that life is a battlefield. That's really hard to believe living in American culture, particularly in suburbia. If you were living in Syria, that would map with your experience and your reality. Uh, But according to Scripture, we are living in a cosmos at war, uh, filled with unseen spiritual forces that are at work. In fact, Johnny Erickson Tata, in her book, When God Weeps, says, the life of the most insignificant, seemingly insignificant person on earth is actually a battlefield where the mightiest forces in the universe converge. Uh, And so we're going to be looking today specifically at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that shows us this reality Uh, that was true for him and is true for us. But one of the most important things I want you to take away from this is that we have a victorious champion who has faced these things, who has endured, who suffered through temptation, uh, but was victorious and offers his victory to you. Now, if you're here this morning investigating the Christian faith, uh, we're so glad you're here. If you have any questions about anything I'm talking about, I'd love to interact with you, or Brian would love to interact with you, or one of the other elders But we're going to be looking at things that are often caricatured in in pop culture, right? Um, A guy in red pajamas with horns and a tail. Uh, But the Bible is very serious about the existence of the devil, that we have an unseen spiritual foe that is literally hell-bent on your destruction and estranging you from God. Uh, And so we need to take these things seriously. Join me in reading, if you would, uh, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at at three things this morning. Number one, why was Jesus tempted? Uh, Why does that matter? Number two, what were these temptations, and, and how did he respond to them? And, and finally, I want to leave you uh, with the question of where, where are you tempted today, and, and how are you responding to that? So, first point, why was Jesus tempted? Um, it tells us in, in verse 1 here that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. And one of the things you need to realize is that this was a parallel, um, that what was going on with Jesus He was just baptized at the end of of chapter 3. I should have said, if you have a Bible, please keep it open to this passage. The end of chapter 3, Jesus was baptized. And and John was saying, 
I shouldn't be baptizing you, John the Baptist. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. We need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What is he saying? I'm identifying with the people. And this passage is similar. Jesus is taken into the wilderness because he's demonstrating that he is the true Israel, that he is the faithful Israel. Uh, so that as Israel, you might remember, after the Exodus, they, they were delivered from Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea, they got the Ten Commandments, and then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And their wandering was kind of grumbling and complaining. I heard a commentator on NPR one time describe the history of the, religious, of, of the Jewish people. They were in Egypt, and they kvetched. And the Lord delivered them and brought them to the edge of the Red Sea, and they kvetched. And he brought them through the Red Sea and brought them to Mount Sinai, and they kvetched. Right? It was the, the history of Israel, if you look, particularly in Numbers, was, was one of grumbling, of, of unbelief, um, not believing God was going to provide for them, even though he faithfully, consistently provided for them. And Jesus here is, is demonstrating that he is the true Israelite, that he would be faithful at the very places where they failed, um, that he would be the true obedient son. And so he's, he's tempted to identify with us and, and to, um, to show himself as the, the true Israelite. And this is really important. Uh, Orthodox theologians have always held to what they call the two natures of Christ. And that means he was fully human and fully God. And we tend to really focus on the fully God part. And the way that can play out in your practical life is, I've had lots of, of men struggling that I've worked with, and when you talk about Jesus in temptation, they'll say, well, he was God, he wasn't going to fail. Like it was no big deal. But you need, to, you need to hold on to both sides of that, that he was, yes, he was fully God, but he was fully human. That meant his suffering in temptation was real suffering. His temptation was real temptation. The end of, of uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke is recording him in the Garden of Gethsemane suffering over, this, over going to the cross, over estrangement from the Father, and says he was suffering so intently, he was, he was sweating drops of blood. Um, I like uh, this passage from Hebrews 2 that records, it says, for this reason he had to be made like them, uh, if we could go to that, that next passage, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen to this. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Temptation was real for him. The suffering was real. And, and this is incredibly important. If you just have the attitude of, well, he was God, it didn't really matter, he wasn't going to fail, you're missing the help that he has to offer you. So what I'd want you to do is hold together this passage from Hebrews 2 with what it says in Hebrews 4. It says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. So what is, hold, hold those two truths together. On one hand, suffered in temptation, endured it, knows the struggle of it, knows the pain of it, but then also was victorious in it. That means he can identify you, with you, he can meet you in your weakness, but he also knows the exact grace that you need to endure, to persevere, to have victory yourself. Uh, in fact, this is one of the ways that Jesus really is the wonderful counselor. You know, you can go to someone with a struggle, and if they 
if they don't have that struggle, their life, their life maybe in that particular area looks better than yours, they might be able to say, well, you know, just don't do that. Do this. You know, why can't, why can't you be like me? You know, I don't struggle with that. Uh, and that might not be particularly encouraging. But if you go to someone who has the exact same struggle, they might be able to get it. But because they're in the same pit, they can't really help you out. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he has been in the pit and he also knows the way to victory through it. So he, he, he suffered um, to identify with us. He suffered so that he would be a help to us in our own struggles. Um, and he suffered also and, and faced temptation to demonstrate the perfection of his love. You know, I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be annoying him at the moment. How do you know Jesus' love was perfect? Because of how he suffered. You know, why did this Roman centurion, who had probably seen thousands of people killed on a cross, saw him die on a cross and said, surely this was the Son of God? Because he never saw somebody die showing compassion. He never saw somebody die making sure his mother was cared for, making sure that the person who just moments before had been mocking him when his heart was softened, was assured a place in paradise. He had never seen someone die saying, Father, please forgive these people. They have no idea what they're doing. Uh, the perfection of his love was shown through the suffering that he went through. Now, this is true for us too. We'll talk about this more going forward, but I just want to put it out here for you to think about. God uses suffering in your life for the same reason. You know, Jesus actually says in, in Matthew 18, it's necessary that, su- that temptation comes. 1 Peter 1 talks about the trials that you go through in this life are for the purification of your faith, which is worth more than gold. So one of the ways I'd want you to think about this, uh, somebody said once, people are like tea bags. You don't know what you've got until you put it into hot water. God takes you through challenges in your life uh, to reveal what's going on in your heart. So he had purposes for Jesus in this suffering, and he has purposes for you in whatever temptations you're facing. Uh, Now let's look specifically at some of these temptations. Uh, It's significant, again, that this is following on the heels of Jesus' baptism, where he had just heard, if you look at, at verse 17, he had just heard this amazing declaration from the Father, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. You know, as we look at these temptations, there's a couple ways that the enemy is coming at him. Number one, challenging his identity to who he belongs. And then also challenging God's will for him, God's purposes for him. And that's still one of the ways he comes at us. So the first temptation, I love, you know, where Matthew starts here, uh, stating the obvious, right? The, the enemy is going at, 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 the, at the clearest place of weakness, Right? And I love what Matthew says. Um, You know, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. In case you haven't figured that out, right? Um, So so the devil's going at the most obvious place of weakness in that moment. Uh, And think about this. Jesus was a first century Palestinian peasant. Uh, That means he probably did not look like the average American. After fasting, for 40 days and 40 nights, his body was probably starting to, to survive off of living tissue. 
he was beginning to starve, right? Um, the enemy is going after this place of weakness and struggle for him. And, and look at again how, how he begins. Uh, he's challenging him, why don't you satisfy your own needs? Why don't you just take care of yourself? Uh, again, corresponding to that struggle of Israel and, and their, their grumbling in the wilderness. Notice, too, that, that he's challenging his identity. And so he starts off, if you are the son of God. Um, the, the Greek, and, and I won't belabor this point, but the Greek almost is saying, since you are the son of God. It, it's, it's challenging the identity, but basically saying, would you prove it? Okay, you've heard this declaration, now prove it. Prove to me that you are. Uh, so he's basically saying, will you manipulate nature to take care of yourself? If you're really the son of God, will you do this? Um, here's the thing. This is what typical world leaders do. Right? If they have power, they use it to their own ends. They use it to take care of themselves. They're looking out for themselves first. And the devil's saying, why don't you do that? Why don't you take care of yourself? Um, but Jesus is a king unlike this world has ever seen before. He, he's not going to take care of himself. And, and this is interesting because he didn't shrink back from using his power over nature. You know, one of the glorious places we see uh, is, is the calming of the storm, right? Where I love the way Mark records it, particularly in Mark 4. You've got this storm. It says the waves are crashing over the side of the boat. The wind is howling. Jesus stands up and says, silence, and it just stops, right? It goes from total chaos to tranquility in an instant. Uh, in fact, I love, I love what the Bible says. You know, the, the disciples wake him up. You might remember he was sleeping in the boat, and the disciples wake him up saying, don't you care if we drown? They're worried about dying. After he calms the storm of the word, it says they were terrified. Um, they had, they had never seen power like this before. So Jesus wasn't scared to use his power. In fact, another contrast I would give you just a few chapters later in Matthew is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know, he had left. He went to grieve the death of Don, John the Baptist, who was his cousin. All of a sudden, all these crowds came and found him in this desolate place. He's speaking to them all day. They've gone, you know, maybe without a couple meals. Jesus won't send them home hungry. You know, what do you get? You get this huge feast, 12 basketfuls left over. When he's literally starving, he won't feed himself. When he's got, he has thousands of people around him who've missed a couple meals, he makes sure nobody goes hungry and, and does this huge, abundant feast. So it's not that he's, he's afraid of using his power. It's that he is not going to meet his own needs. He's entrusting himself to the Father. Um, and I want to ask you, where, where does God have you waiting today? It was okay um, that Jesus would eat in that moment. He was literally starving to death. One of the ways the devil comes at us isn't with these blatantly sinful, horrible things. They're good things in the wrong way or the wrong timing. So where are you struggling what is it that God is withholding that you think you should have? Uh, it could be a spouse if you're single. It could be a better marriage if, if you're married and struggling. It could be a better relationship with maybe a child or a parent or, or some other relationship. Um, 
maybe some other thing. The question, and I love, I love how the Lord puts things together because so many of the songs just resonated so much with, with what was on my heart to share with you. Where is he calling you to wait on him and trust him this morning? Um, you know, at the same time, he, he challenges our identity. Um, you know, one of, one of the places in my, in my own life, uh, God has me in an area of waiting right now that has been going on for, for a long season. And at one point, probably about a year and a half ago, I was talking about this with my wife um, after another kind of disappointment and, and wondering what God was doing. Um, I was talking about it with my wife, and she said, Dave, whenever you talk about this, you always talk about it in terms of your worth instead of waiting. So I know that you all have the right Sunday school answer of, I'm God's child, he loves me. I mean, we've been singing about it, right? But where does practically, where does that meet you? Particularly in these places of unsatisfied longings. Do you believe that he really cares? Do you believe that he's really good? Um, we'll come back to that a little later. Uh, I guess the, the one thing I want to leave you with Scripture makes clear that if you believe in him, that you are in Christ, that you're united to him. And what that means is that incredible benediction that, we, that I pointed you to at the end of chapter 3 is for you. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Um, so how did Jesus respond to this? It is worth noting, I'm sure if you've read this passage before, uh, he always parried with Scripture. He always had a biblical response. And, and all three of these come from the book of Deuteronomy. And that, again, is significant uh, because Deuteronomy is reflecting, particularly these two passages, um, the, the, this first one is from uh, Deuteronomy 8, the next two come from Deuteronomy 6. But in both of those chapters in Deuteronomy, it is reflecting, Moses reflecting on Israel's wilderness wandering. And so it's from that place, again, where Jesus is demonstrating he, he is the faithful Israelite going through this. Um, now, Scripture is the only, if you look at Ephesians 6, it's the only offensive weapon we have. And, you know, I know, I know you can't make sermon application this, this basic, but I've, I've got to say it, people. Um, you have to read the Bible. That really matters. Jesus knew the word. That's why he had an answer to respond with. And, and it's really significant that, that we spend time reading Scripture, that we focus on his promises. We were singing a moment ago that I'm not going to believe my feelings. I'm going to believe his promises. How does that work? You have to know the promises because your feelings are really, really loud. I was wrestling with my feelings this morning. They're really loud. You've got to push back against them with his promises. Um, so uh, I will give you that, you know, Sunday school answer of you, you do, you need to read your Bible. It's amazing, uh, you know, Brian shared about the ministry that I have with, with men struggling with, with sexual sin. And there's so many men that are amazed that, and, and, and discipleship is more complex than this, but there's so many men that come back to be amazed when I start challenging them on, you've got to spend time in this book every day, that they realize it actually does make a difference. Now, it's not going to be um, 
It's not going to be this mountaintop experience all the time, and that's part of the challenge. We expect God to deliver the way idols deliver. He's not going to do that. You know, you can't just take Jesus and put him where, you know, whatever addiction or struggle you have in your life is. Uh, He's not going to be as significant. He's not going to give you the same thrill as looking at pornography or even a bowl of ice cream. It's not going to happen that way. But, But what you learn is there is something ongoing and sustaining. The grace that I find after spending time with him in the morning isn't necessary in that moment that I start my day so jazzed and excited. But the way that I come home after work may be different. The strength that I have to respond when I'm exhausted, when my kids are going crazy, um, is different. So, it is, it is crucial. You need to know the promises to be able to respond to the lies that are coming at you. Uh, so, Jesus responds, again, saying that, that he is, um, as you saw here, that, that we are not to live on bread alone, but by, by every word that comes from the mouth of God in verse 4. So as they grumbled and complained, um, again, the, the contrast from Israel in the wilderness, they grumbled and complained, but Jesus actually starved and was faithful. And I, I love what it says in John 4 that um, he said his food and drink was to do the will of the Father. That is what sustained him. So, so fellowship with the Father was worth more than food and drink. Now, the last thing I want to point out with this, and, and I need to keep moving because I've I got a long road to hoe here yet. Um, it's really important if you look at verse 11. The devil left him, angels came and attended to him. Did you catch that? The Father was faithful. The Father showed up and took care of him and met his needs. Jesus didn't need to take care of himself. He didn't need to turn the stones into bread. The Father was waiting to come and bless him and minister to him through the angels. Okay, the next temptation. Jesus is taken, it says in in verse 5, to the pinnacle of the temple. Um, I think it must have been a bodily thing, otherwise the challenge of throwing himself down, in other words, it wasn't a vision. I think somehow the devil was able to transport him there. Um, Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about how things like this happen. Uh, It makes clear, though, that obviously the devil has significant power, but what I want you to hold on to when you think of things like that is the one in us is greater than the one in the world. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, any time the demons encountered him, they were terrified, right? So so Jesus' power is greater. He, again, he challenges his identity. Uh, One of the ideas here is perhaps that he's he's looking at Malachi 3. Um, In Malachi 3, it it says this, I'm going to send my messenger, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so some of the rabbis at this time were teaching that the Messiah was going to descend from heaven into the temple court. And that's how people were going to know it. And so there's a sense in which maybe the devil was saying, hey, if you do this, you know, it's, make, it's going to make a big splash. You know, one of the things that the religious authorities through his whole ministry were challenging Jesus with, are you really the one? Are you really God's son? He's saying right here at the beginning, you can show everybody what's up and, and who you truly are. Uh, He now is going to respond even saying, hey, what about Scripture? And so he quotes from Psalm 91 uh, about the the angels lifting up their hands so he's not going to strike his foot against a stone. So he's he's actually trying to use Scripture. Now, what's really important to see here is 
The devil is presenting Scripture as promises that you can exploit. How to get God to work for you. How to get God to do what you want him to do. Look at how radically different. Jesus is looking at Scripture saying, Father, how would you have me live? How would you have me be in relationship with you? Not to manipulate, not to exploit, and, and to get God to do what I want him to do. Um, how, do, how does Jesus respond to this? Jesus is saying, uh, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He, he sees where the enemy is going with this. Makes me think of, of Proverbs 3, where you know, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of your ways. Lord, would you, would you lead me? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. And one of the things that, that, that I want you to consider uh, and this is so clear, particularly if you think, if, if the devil is making that connection with Malachi 3 of make a big splash, start off your ministry in a big way here. Um, Jesus is saying, I'm going to trust how God is going to work this out. I'm going to trust my father with, with the plan that he has. Uh, one of the ways I want you to think about that is Jesus always lived with his feet firmly planted in reality with a capital R. There was no fantasy world in Jesus' mind. He trusted his father's will. He lived according to it. He didn't try to think, you know, what if the world was this way? What if this person was this way? What if I could, you know, make this circumstance? And, uh, and we all do that. You know, you have fantasies about what you'd like to see happen to your boss or what, <coughs> what you'd like to be able to say to this person or, or how you'd like the kids to really be, you know. Um, Jesus lived in the reality that was there and, and trusted his father with it. Um, this is significant. Jesus, he said, you know, throw yourself down. The Father is not going to let you strike your foot on a stone. Jesus was not spared eventual death, right? But he willingly laid down his life. The end of Matthew, uh, he says, his disciples want to intervene. He says, you know what? I could have 12 legions of angels here like that. I'm, I'm surrendering to this. I'm willing to do it. And here's what I want you to think about, uh, particularly if you're here investigating the Christian faith. Jesus was willing to have his life dashed against the rocks for you. That's the hope of the gospel, that Jesus entered into this world for that reason, willingly to lay his life down, to live that perfect life that none of us could live. All of us are more like the grumbling Israel than not. He came to be the one who lived the perfect life, to pass through all this temptation victoriously. And the promise is that if you are in him, uh, his righteousness is given to you. But although Jesus wasn't spared death, it is significant that, Je that the Father raised him from the dead. Right? The promise, that, the promise was his Holy One would not see decay and that he was raised to an indestructible life. Um, the next temptation, again, Jesus transported to, to see, to the top of a mountain, to see all the kingdoms of the world. And here, the enemy is really laying all his cards on the table. I want you to worship me. I'll give you all this. Just worship me. And the main thing the enemy's after, he will come at you with your identity. He'll come at you with the ways, hey, God really isn't loving you. He's not providing for you. But the main thing he's really after is he wants to break connection with the Father. He wants you to lose that, that relationship and communion. Um, and it's ultimately 
for your destruction. His desire is to enslave. He's basically saying, all right, Jesus, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world. Apparently, they were his to give. He's called elsewhere in Scripture as the prince of this world. But the cost was, you're going to be my servant. You'll be ruling under me. And a big part of that lure was, you can have all these kingdoms without having to go to the cross. All you got to do is bow down. You don't have to lay down your life. Um, The enemy is always inviting, isn't there a way to shortcut some of the suffering that you have to go through? Isn't there a way to shortcut that? Um, At the same time, there's always this bait and switch of, you know, I'm promising you this thing, but it's going to be destructive. The reason for that is there's really nothing greater in this universe than union with God. There's nothing greater... um, David says, your steadfast love is better than life. I want you to experience a deeper relationship, deeper fellowship with me, particularly through suffering. Um, and so how does, how does Jesus respond? He immediately just, just calls him out saying, no, I'm going to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, I wanted to point you to the context of Deuteronomy 6 here just briefly on this slide, because this is important for us. (coughs) This is from where Jesus is quoting in Deuteronomy 6, and it warns, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. A A land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, be careful, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I think this is a particular warning for us. As Americans, most of us, even if you say the Lord's Prayer, you don't have a sense of really needing to pray for daily bread. You go to your refrigerator and you open it up. There's a huge danger that we have of of forgetting him, of not understanding our dependence on him, not living in the kind of dependence that Jesus had. Um, So where, where are you worshiping? Where are you trusting in, in the way that you can provide for yourself. Your needs are met. Um, last question as we, as we close here. <coughs> Excuse me, where are you being tested today? And will you trust him? Uh, where is he calling you to wait? What are the good things that are being withheld right now? Um, where is he calling you to live in reality? Where are you escaping to, I would like to change this situation, or I'd like to change this person. My life, a, a way to answer that question, you know, how, how would you fill in this blank? Everything in my life would be okay if only what? What would you fill in that blank? Um, those are the places where God is saying, will you come to me with this? Will you surrender this to me? Will you trust me? Um, so what is pulling at your heart? Where do you need to live in reality and trust him? Believe in his goodness Believe in his purposes for you. Uh, what are the petty things of this world that would squeeze out a passion for him? You know, if you think about it, Jesus is being offered all the kingdoms of this world, and that sounds pretty amazing. He showed him, you know, apparently was able to zero in on, look at what's going on in Babylon right now. Let's go look at what's going on over here in Egypt and, and over here. I could give you all that. And that could sound pretty tempting to lots of us, but it's actually paltry compared to what his loving Heavenly Father had for him the ruler of a, of a re- recreated cosmos, heaven and earth united together, a brand new heaven and earth 
What she says is beyond your ability to comprehend. All the kingdoms of the world aren't even worth comparing to that. He had something infinitely better he wanted to give. Will you trust him with where he has you and the purposes he has in your life? Uh, Again, because we need to live by the promises. Uh, You're not going to be able to do this for too long, so I'll throw it out now because it's only been a week. I don't know if anybody knows, something significant happened last Sunday for the city of Philadelphia. Promises, amen, I did see some color out here. Um, Promises matter. Where this is headed matters. What do I mean by that? Jesus has told you how this is going to end. There is a world coming you can't possibly comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can even conceive. Dream as big as you can. You can't even imagine it. That's where it's headed. He's promised you at the end of Jude that he is going to keep you from stumbling and bring you there with great joy into his glory. So I don't know what twist and turn you have going on in your life right now, but the example I would give from last week's game is this. I don't know about you. Uh, I wore almost a hole in my carpet during the fourth quarter. (laughs) You may be at a 33-32 moment in your life right now. But he has told you what the final score is going to be. He has told you where this is going. Will you trust him? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the champion who's gone before, that you have done uh, what is impossible for us, that you were victorious over sin, over temptation, uh, and at the same time, you, you suffered through it. You know, what, you know what we're going through. You've experienced it. You even know the shame and guilt because it was laid on you at the cross, even though you never committed sin. We thank you that you who know no sin were made sin for us so that in you we could become the righteousness of God. Would you help us? Uh, Lord, you know the places where I'm struggling right now. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you impress on their hearts your goodness, your faithfulness, your commitment to them, and your promise to bring them safely through. In Jesus' name, amen.